Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. We come this morning to the concluding verses of this letter, having spent the better part of the last year uh, examining verse by verse patiently the text of this most glorious gospel. It is, if you will, the gospel of Paul. It is um, considered to be by many the greatest New Testament letter saying that if you had only the book of Romans, you would have essentially a knowledge of the entire New Testament. Well, let's read together, beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. Father, once again, we petition you in prayer. We ask not of a genie who is waiting to do our bidding, but we ask of our heavenly Father, the creator of heaven and earth, the author of life, the Father of lights, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, the Alpha and the Omega, the God who is near. We ask that you would give us clarity and insight to these final words of this most glorious letter that your spirit inspired. May you stir in us um, an ability to listen and the will to obey. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For your good pleasure, I artfully and skillfully broke Romans 16 down into three sections. Actually, all of your Bibles have the same subheadings as mine, probably. Verses 1 to 16, verses 17 to 23, verses 25 to 27. We looked at Paul's heart for people in verses 1 through 16. We looked at Paul's heart for protection in verses 17 through 23 with that great warning. And finally, we look this morning at Paul's heart for praise in these concluding verses. Paul's heart for praise. You may have over those last three verses a subheading that says the word doxology. It is, in fact, a doxology. It's one of many found in the New Testament, and in fact, in the Bible. The word doxology is a medieval Latin term. It's a conjunction. Doxa means glory, and ology is, or allegia, more specifically, is, um, is a, a word spoken, a expression. 
And so you have this conjunction, an expression of God's glory or an expression of praise, a doxology. By this, we are reminded of an all-important fact that I have sought to reiterate with our church family for years now, and that is this. All worship offered to God is a response. All worship offered to God is a response. God acted first, we respond. Three quick examples. Number one, he created the earth and we observe its beauty and in doing so, we respond with praise and awe. We respond with a praise of awe. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter one? That he has made his glory, his invisible attributes clearly known so that we are without excuse. He has revealed himself to us if by nothing else than simply through creation itself. And we respond with a praise of awe. Jesus said God loved the world so much that he gave of his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not face those consequences of the original curse because of the original sin, death, but would instead have everlasting life. He acted, we respond with a praise of thanks. Don't we? When we consider the cross and the gift of salvation, that Jesus did what we could not, that he took on himself the punishment we deserved, and that he then gives to us what he earned in his life, all of the blessings of God, all of the blessings of the inheritance of the throne of God reserved for mankind, he earned them, but he gives them to you? That's ridiculous. How else might we respond except to say, thank you, (laughs) right? It's a praise of thanks. God acted, we respond Thirdly, God softened your broken, I should say your stony heart to be receptive to the gospel. I love it from the prophet Jeremiah. God says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Is not his word like a hammer that broke your stony heart. In Ezekiel 36, the replication or the replacement of the stony heart with the soft heart of flesh. Was it not the word of God that broke you in your sin and sinfulness so that you cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me. He softened your heart to be receptive. He made you, Ephesians 2, alive with him through Christ. We respond by a praise of obedience. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 12? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I appeal to you, friend, that the only reasonable response to the cross of your salvation 
is to present your body as a living sacrifice. Your every breath, your will, your energy, your efforts, your talents, you offer them back to God the way Jesus offered himself for you. We respond with a praise of obedience. It's the only reasonable response. See, we respond to God's action in all praise, in all worship. God initiates something marvelous and we are responding to his action. With this closing word of praise in Romans 16, Paul is responding to the content of the letter. I want that to sink in. I don't want it to get lost on us. With the closing word of praise, the way we respond in worship, Paul is, if you will, responding in worship to the content of his letter. In fact, he summarized the whole letter in the closing doxology. I was tempted to, to blow this out to like four weeks. <laughs> I kid you not. It took every ounce of self-control this week not to turn this into a four-part sermon where we rehash and reiterate the entire book of Romans as it is seen through the lens of the closing doxology. I'll spare you that, but I will insist on this moment that we take a few seconds to appreciate that the entirety of the letter is summarized in this doxology and it is responded to in praise because all praise is a response to God's marvelous action. Friend, you don't have it in you apart from Christ to worship God. If he doesn't first act in the beauty of creation, in the giving of the Son, in the softening of the heart, we would never choose to glorify him. We don't have it in us. But he makes us able by the cross of Christ and by the renewal of our spirit the regeneration of our soul, the creating of a new heart, the process of what Jesus called being born again, that new person in you is capable of responding to the marvelous action of God with worship. Left to our own devices, we would only curse him, rebel against him, wage war against him, and ultimately simply disobey his commands. That's what we're capable of. But praise be to God through Christ. We offer him a word of praise and awe over creation in thanks for the cross and in obedience as the only reasonable response. Now as Paul responds to the content of his letter with a word of praise, Paul shows us one final example we ought to imitate, as he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One final example to imitate, and he teaches us how to do it. Three aspects of Paul's heart for praise. If you're taking notes, number one, worship is offered to him who is able. 
Worship is offered to him who is able. For the worshiper, there is a preoccupation with his ability. Did we not just say it over and over and over again in worship? What did we not say? We did not say, I will hold fast to the cross. I will hold myself fast to the promises. I will hold myself fast to the grace. I will, I will. Did we say that? I I forget now. It's been 30 seconds. He will, he will, he will. Right? When we worship, our preoccupation is with his ability. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. Not my repentance is more. His mercy is more. We are preoccupied with his ability to overcome the dreadfulness of our sin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He is able. If we're not careful, we would brush right past that phrase. When we worship, there needs to be, there ought to be a preoccupation with his ability. If a worship song sung in a corporate setting has me and I and what I will do as the primary thrust of its message, there's, a, there's an askew teaching happening. And that song should be left to the dustbin and replaced with ones that have a preoccupation with the ability of God. Great is thy faithfulness, not great is my faithfulness, right? Yeah. The words, he who is able, come up again and again in the New Testament. Don't try to write these down. I'm going to run over them quickly. If you want them, I'll give them to you after the service. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to keep you, 2 Timothy 1.12. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is able to give you grace, 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's able to give grace. Hebrews 2, 18, for because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help you in temptation. Jude, verse 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. He's able to present you blameless. You and all of your sin and all of the years of foolishness, all the moments of ego and pride and selfishness and half-truths and gluttony and gossip and lust. He's able to present you, sinner, to the God of all creation saying, this one belongs to me, this one belongs to you. He's able to present you clean. We worship a God who's able. Philippians 3.21, 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able and will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He is able to raise our bodies. He's able to save, able to keep, able to give grace, able to help in temptation. He's able to keep you, able to present you, able to raise your body. Finally, as Paul writes to the Ephesians in the, in the closing section of, of his teaching before he transitions in chapter four to the application, he says he is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power, not your faithfulness, not your obedience, not your strength, but his power that is at work within us. He's able to do more than you can even imagine. More than you can ask. We worship the God who is able. In your deepest need, in your darkest hour, he is able. As King Jehoshaphat said when he looked out on the vast army besieging Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 20, he looked out, he said, Lord, we have no power, no strength against this great horde. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He is able. We are not, but you are. So our eyes are on you. It's wonderful if you read the story that the Lord responds through the prophet. who there publicly, with all the people gathered together, here's the King Jehoshaphat standing up before the the people of Israel in Jerusalem. Out there behind the walls is an army large enough to decimate all of us ten times over, and they hate your guts. And Jehoshaphat says, let's pray. Oh Lord, we are powerless against this enemy. We don't know what to do. How about we make some arrows? Stop, all right, stop. Let's booby trap the walls. Settle down. You see this, okay? Inconquerable. Our best laid plans are doomed to failure. Oh Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the prophet responds and says, thus says the Lord, do not fear. Only go out against them. March out from your city against them. That's crazy talk. When you're being besieged by an army big enough to destroy you 10 times, you hide behind the walls and you fortify yourselves. You use the walls to your example. The Lord said to the prophet, you march out against them. Don't be afraid, just march out and stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And that very night, the Lord caused confusion among the groups that had banded together. Perhaps a language barrier, they were unfamiliar with each other. Perhaps one group thought that the Israelites were ambushing them in the middle of the night and so they began to fight each other and the whole army killed one another until none of them were left. It took them three days for Israel to march across the battlefield and collect all the loot and all the spoils of war, a war that they did not fight. They just stood still to see the salvation of the Lord. Friends, this is your salvation in Christ. The enemy that stands against you is great enough to defeat you 10 times over. We are powerless against the enemy. We don't know what to do, but we look to the cross and we say, our eyes are on you. Either it's all foolishness or he's able. Where was I? 
Romans 16, we worship the God who is able. What is he able to do? He is able to strengthen you. Specifically in Romans 16, he is able to strengthen you. Some translations read establish you. The word sterizo carries the idea of being firmly rooted like a plant, being carefully, expertly settled into good soil. The conditions of that artful and masterful settling make it strong. That's why some Bibles read strengthen, others read establish. The two things go hand in hand. The key is to understand where exactly he strengthens or establishes you. Is it in your body? When you come to Christ, do you you become Superman? where bullets and temptation alike bounce off of you? No, in fact, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Peace and trouble. So it is not that he, he strengthens you in your body. Steph Curry writing Philippians chapter four on his shoes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win the championship because Jesus made me strong enough to shoot a basketball. No, stop ripping scripture grossly out of context, okay? Stop it. He's able to strengthen you not in your body. We are but flesh and blood. James even says, count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Paul prayed for the Lord to remove a thorn from his side, a thorn of his flesh, some kind of an ailment three times. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength abounds in your physical weakness. So he's able to strengthen you. He must not be speaking about physically, then what's he talking about? I mean, there's only a few other options, right? He's talking about mental, spiritual strength. Right? Didn't Jesus say, we worship the Lord with all of our mind and heart and strength? On January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian were speared to death on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Curare River in Ecuador. They were trying to reach the Horani Indians with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men gave their lives in pursuit of this dream. How is it possible then that one of those men, Jim Elliott, that his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, would continue the effort to bring these people the gospel after they brutally and savagely speared her husband to death? How is it possible that she would stay and continue to attempt to breach the language barrier, eventually establishing a church there among the people who had brutally killed her husband? How is it possible? Now to him who is able to strengthen you. That's how. A spiritual strength given by God who is able. He made her strong 
He made her capable of coping with the loss and carrying on with the mission. In this world you will have trouble, but I have told you these things so that you will have peace. He makes the weak strong, Isaiah 40. He gives strength to the weary. This is encouraging to the humble, but it is an offense to the prideful. If you wish to be made strong by God, you must be weak. If you wish to be made strong by God, you must be weak. Do you feel weak? Do you think yourself in need of being made strong? Christian, we should. We need not be afraid, but we mustn't suppose ourselves to be strong. But praise be to God, we who are powerless against the enemies of our souls are made strong in him. Like the horde surrounding Jerusalem in Jehoshaphat's story, we have three great enemies surrounding us, each of which we are powerless to overcome. Number one is our own sin nature. We were born into sin and we are powerless to overcome it on our own. We will sin before we have even the cognitive ability to understand what sin is. You ever meet a 14-month-old child? Rotten little sinners. Throwing their cups on the floor. Splashing food everywhere. Kicking and flailing and getting like feces all over their feet and all over everywhere when you're trying to change their diaper. Little sinners. Three enemies, our sin nature. Number two, the the prince of darkness himself. We are powerless to overcome him. He masquerades as an angel of light, we read. And so too, this angel of light presented himself in the form of the angel Moroni and delivered to this man, Joseph Smith, this farcical of a gospel message, twisting the person and likeness of Jesus Christ into a deception that has captured millions called Mormonism. We would be as deceived, okay? We are incapable of defeating such an enemy. And then finally, there's of course death itself. I appreciate... I appreciate uh, professional athletes. There's uh, uh, all these conversations about, you know, who was the greatest basketball player. The answer is Michael Jordan. Let's just stop. But is it Kobe? Is it LeBron? It's like, thank you. Thank you. But what do they say about all the greats? They use this phrase, Father Time is undefeated. No matter how great you are, eventually the knees begin to give out, you know? The skills fail, the soft tissue, the ligaments, the wear and tear, Father Time is undefeated. It's not that different with death, friends. Death is batting a thousand, right? There is one who conquered death. There is one who raised himself from the dead Jesus Christ but we are powerless against death our world is terrified of death our world 
turned itself over and shut itself down at the fear of a virus which they believed would bring death. We're still suffering the economic and otherwise consequences of that. We are powerless against our sin nature, powerless against the prince of darkness, powerless against death itself. But he has made us strong in Christ because he said it in John 16, 33 again, take heart, I have overcome the world. Not you, but I. And I, Jesus, am able to strengthen you against these unconquerable enemies. It's good, right? When we worship, we worship the God who is able. This is to be our preoccupation, not the tempo of the song nor the skill of the musician, the God who is able. Number two, worship is centered around the gospel. And if you're thinking, oh dear, this is only point number two, I'm thinking the same thing. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. Worship is centered around the gospel. Look with me at the next part of verse 25 and into verse 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to what? My gospel? According to the preaching of Jesus Christ? According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations? Worship is centered around the gospel. There's three emphases in this portion that essentially summarize the book of Romans. The gospel, the mystery, and at the end, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Three emphases, the gospel, the mystery, and the results. Number one, the gospel. Paul calls it my gospel, not because he preaches something different from Jesus nor from the other apostles. I understand this phrase to contain a sense of ownership and calling. Paul is not a a passive vessel in the good news. He applies his entire self to the task. Drawing on his experiences, his education, he uses all of his faculties to express the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. He owns it. It's my gospel. He refines it. He studies, prays, meditates, labors to know and to be able to articulate the truths of the gospel. This is a challenge for us, friends, to be able to articulate the hope that we have It's a challenge for us to refine our knowledge of his word, the gospel, such that in any scenario, in any moment, to any audience, we can communicate the hope of the gospel. And by this effort, by this refining, by this prayer and meditation, studying and application of all things that we have at our disposal, the message we we communicate becomes my gospel. Not that it's different, but that we own it. We know it. We live it and breathe it. If I told you to share the gospel using only the book of Leviticus, could you do it? And you think, I've never even read the book of Leviticus. (laughs) 
I fell asleep one time trying. Well, how else are you going to reach a Jew who gives no credence to the New Testament writings with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Except to do what Paul did, which is to argue from the scriptures, which is to say the Torah, that Jesus is the Messiah. What if you had no Bible with you, locked in jail, attempting to share the good news of Christ with your fellow inmates? No Bible on hand, no tracks that explain the steps to peace with God. And you only had at your disposal what you had memorized, what you had hidden in your heart, what you knew, what you practiced, what you meditated on. Could you, friends, present the true gospel to the arrogant businessman in first class or to the broken-hearted young woman trapped in an abusive situation? Can you tailor the gospel to each of them depending on what they need to hear when the Lord gives you the opportunity to do so? Are you ready? Or do you have over here in the corner, dust bin, dusty corner, sort of little side table of your life, there's the gospel and here's my life? Or do you have my gospel? Ready, like a sword in its sheath, strapped to your side at any time, ready to wield it, use it, thrust it into the heart of the would-be redeemed. Are you ready? Do not ask the Lord to give you the opportunity to share the gospel if you are not prepared to prepare yourself to own the gospel. If we cannot answer yes confidently to each of those challenges, we have work to do so that we own the gospel message the way that Paul does. At any rate, we worship God because of the gospel. Worship is centered around the gospel. And how can we possibly worship him then in spirit and in truth if we don't know and own the gospel? They say you don't really know something until you can teach it. Can you? Secondly, there's the mystery. This is the other aspect of Paul's my gospel comment. It's the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now disclosed, and you go, whoa, what's he talking about, dude? Right? The mystery kept hidden, now revealed. The mystery communicated by the prophets fulfilled in Christ. What is this mystery? Well, it's not flashy, but it is important. The mystery is at the heart of Paul's letter, at the heart of his ministry, and it is one of the more challenging things about Romans to appreciate. The mystery to which he refers is all about the Gentiles being grafted in to God's chosen people. We spoke about it at some point in Sunday school this morning. This mystery hidden even from the Pharisees and the scribes in the lifetime of Jesus. Their eyes were closed. The mystery was hidden. But now with the coming of the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the apostles, that mystery is uncovered. It is revelation. It is apocalypto. It is unveiled. The eyes are opened. 
This is underappreciated because we don't live in the hotbed of tension between Orthodox Jew and Gentile Christian, but they did. In our everyday lives, we take for granted the harmony between Jews and Christians. Peter described this mystery uncovered. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The reason we understand this mystery now is because the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished in agreement with the prior revelation, the mystery revealed. It is a remarkable and complex plan that God laid out in the course of human history in order to accomplish his goal. A unified people dwelling peacefully in his presence, he in ours, with full knowledge of his personhood and character, yet free from the stain of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In order to accomplish this Great plan is revealed to us in Ezekiel 48. It's revealed in Revelation 21. God dwelling with his people, his people dwelling with him. In order to accomplish the ends, God lays out the human experience that we are living in right now, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In order to get to the end, he set his attention and his presence on a particular group of people, the descendants of one faithful man, Abraham. He gave to them his law, his blessings, his wisdom, his protection, his power, and his very presence among them. This group neither deserved this, nor did they keep his requirements for living at peace with him. Yet in his mercy he forgave them, and through them brought about the physical incarnation of the Son, of the flesh, He was born a Hebrew. He, Jesus, fulfilled all the requirements the Hebrew people couldn't. He kept the law of God perfectly. And in this nation that we call Israel, after Jacob, who was renamed, in Israel we see a microcosm of the human condition. We are neither worthy of God's mercy nor are we capable of keeping up our end of the bargain even if he were to wipe our sinful slate clean. Like Israel, we are not worthy and incapable and yet in Jesus we see a champion, the chosen representative of mankind for mankind. He is like Adam in that his victory is our victory even as Adam's failure is our failure. Jesus' privileges are ours by faith, even as Adam's curses are ours by birthright. And upon the final victory over our great enemies, sin and death, Jesus commanded his disciples to go to the all, go all out throughout the entire world, not just to God's chosen people, Israel, and proclaim the message of hope and peace and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 
all made possible to all people in the whole earth because of the accomplishments of the Jewish Messiah. The wisdom and complexity of this blows our minds, or at least it should. What a plan. What a plan. I'm going to save people from all walks of life, from every corner of the earth, from every tribe and nation under the sun. I will rescue them and redeem them. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. And in heaven we will all speak with one voice and with one language as we glorify and praise God together. And God says in order to do that, I'm gonna set my affections on this one people. And in this one people, the world will see a picture of humanity. And as we think on the beauty of that plan, we go, it's pretty smart. Pretty good, right? That's what he's talking about. And when we worship, we do so in thinking about the complexity and the marvelous nature of that mystery now revealed. How else can we respond except the way that Paul does in Romans 11? Citing Job and Isaiah. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Who can know the mind of God? What a mystery. What a marvelous plan. And there's finally the results. Verse 26 is this mystery kept secret has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. What's the command of the eternal God? To bring about the obedience of faith. That is the results. Obedience. What are the results of the gospel? Obedience. And I think for the sake of the for the sake of the significance of this point for the sake of the severity of missing it we'll pause there we'll pause there knowing that Next week, we'll return to this moment. This moment where we recognize that worship focuses on the gospel. No, 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 not number three. Ignore that. That's next week. Go back to number two. Look. Yep. Worship is centered around the gospel, and the effects of the gospel are the obedience of faith. For the sake of preserving 
that message. We'll pause there today. And perhaps, once again, simply conclude with those words of praise from Paul as we pause on the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let's allow these to be our closing words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we leave uh, this place this morning with um, hopefully with a sense of anticipation of that which is to come. Both in terms of the continuation of the teaching and in terms of the fulfillment of the gospel. All of God's people gathered together to worship him in spirit and in truth in your presence without the stain of sin without even the memory of our shame without the temptation to sin and sinfulness without selfishness and greed and pride and lust and gossip and divisions but with an absolute pure heart being able to offer to you the words of praise Lord, may we leave this place with a sense of holy anticipation for those moments that we will spend with you doing just that in eternity. For that is why Jesus died. In Christ's name we pray all these things.